COP27 has just finished off its day on water and gender. What did the panel on clean hydrogen say and how is the business case developing? Is it truly becoming real? Specifically, what was the debate and status on green hydrogen and how is that investment thesis developing? And what did our very own climate minister say on his panel? You're with Katrina King, General Manager of Capital Solutions at QIC. And to answer these questions and more, I'm joined by our very own Dr. Sebastian Thomas, who's our climate and environmental lead for QIC. Sebastian is in Sharm el-Sheikh for COP27, and I'm looking forward to hearing his thoughts on the day. Hi, Sebastian. Hi, Katrina. Good to join you. I'd love to hear a little bit about this clean hydrogen discussion that was had during the day. What are the prospects and challenges? It's an interesting space in this particular area of innovation. Um, we talk about blue hydrogen, which is effectively a hydrogen energy source developed using fossil fuels with carbon capture and storage. But we also talk about green hydrogen, which is developed using purely renewable energy. And I think at the moment in the hydrogen technology space, we're not right at the beginning of the innovation curve. We've moved past that. So in the United States, in Europe, elsewhere, including in Australia, we're now at the point where there's capital available to invest. The initial barriers in this technological innovation have been overcome, but there are still some challenges that remain. And they tend to be around governance and regulatory issues, around getting permits moved through so that hydrogen power sources can be connected to the grid. They are in some respects technological about ensuring that there is the capacity for hydrogen energy sources to feed into the grid or into transport systems. But green hydrogen in particular is of great interest. So in the hydrogen space, there's this nuance going and people are making the point that genuinely clean, renewable-based green hydrogen is what we need going forward, and there are lots of opportunities. So to give you some examples, in, in Australia, there are mining companies, for instance, that have made the commitment to move to green hydrogen. And you know these are, these are resource-intensive and emissions-intensive businesses that are making the commitment to be zero carbon, true zero, rather than just offsetting, mm. using hydrogen and renewable energy to change all of their processes, including providing renewable energy electricity on mine sites, to converting trucks to be driven with hydrogen fuel cells, to have trains that are running on batteries, which are actually generating their energy as they go downhill, and then using that generated electricity to get themselves back up to the top. So there are very smart solutions in this space. Uh, and we're seeing a lot of really positive movement. Sounds like a really mature change moving for the industry, really getting past that innovation stage and into, as you say, somewhere where we're debating more the governance and then regulatory issues. Besides just this sort of benevolent desire to do that and, and knowing that we all have to meet 2030 or 2050 goals, what do you think has really sped this up over the last six to 12 months? I think the business case has become very clear that there's much more reason to invest in clean energy than to pursue short-term profits that are going to be stranded in the long term. And an example is the invasion of, of Ukraine and the way that, that that has accelerated things in this space. First of all, it's highlighted the fact that dependence on fossil fuel energy sources is a risk. You're with Katrina King and I'm interviewing Dr. Sebastian Thomas, the QIC's lead for climate change and the environment. Sebastian is joining us from Sharm el-Sheikh, where he is covering off on COP27. And I believe that there was the opportunity to 
today to see some of your fellow patriots from Australia on a couple of the panels. Can we get a little bit more detail on that? I have to say the Australia Pavilion is one of the highlights of COP27. It's a great space. A lot of the climate and carbon mafia are, are hanging out there. We're seeing friends and colleagues of QIC. Uh, I caught up with the Aboriginal Carbon Foundation's CEO yesterday, Ron Foley. They are a partner of QIC. We've seen the Energy Efficiency Council. We've seen the Australian Industry Group caught up with colleagues from consultancies like Endeavour and Energetics. So it's a really, really good space. And there was a particularly excellent session yesterday at the Australian Pavilion with the Minister for Climate Change and Energy, Chris Bowen. He was joined by the Deputy Premier of South Australia, Dr Susan Close, and the CEO of of the Australian Renewable Energy Agency, ARENA, Darren Miller. That was a great session. Australia has incredible capacity in climate science, in climate change responses around policy, around technology, all the rest of it. We've been doing this stuff very, very well for many, many years. But we've also had over the last decade or so, some back and forth steps in terms of our policy approaches to, to climate change. And I think that's been a real constraint for business and for investment, because without clear policy frameworks, without regulatory certainty, business can't invest. And what has changed, and this was a point made by Chris Bowen on this panel, is that we now have a government that is absolutely committed to stability in regulatory frameworks. And it's not just at the federal level. One of the things that the, the new federal government has done is establish uh, a council of energy ministers, which very early on, working with all states and territories and the federal government, has decided to ensure that there is cohesion and coherence in, in national regulatory structures. So we're seeing real benefits of that. We're seeing the federal government investing in major energy infrastructure and assets like the renewable energy hub that's being built in the Pilbara, like the uh, Sun Cable high voltage direct current that is going to provide power into Indonesia. And it's also the case that those major investments are providing clean energy at home. So the government at federal and, and state level are looking at building renewable energy hubs in the Pilbara that will provide clean energy to all the mines in that area. The Sun Cable that's going to take renewable energy into Indonesia is also going to provide power for Darwin. We've seen a big investment in what's called the Marinus Link, which is going to be a subsea power cable to link Tasmania with Victoria. Now, Tasmania is already running on 100% renewable energy and has the capacity to double or, or triple that. But unless they have the option to export that excess renewable energy to the mainland, there's nothing much that they can do with it. And so taking those long-term views on how you can create coherent national system to not only provide clean power domestically, but to export it in different ways is absolutely critical. Thank you. That stability is certainly, I think, being felt through the population and through the business community. Do you think, though, that there are some key pieces of legislation that investors should be waiting for before they move in or that you would be wanting to see come through? Or is it the time now and just get moving? The answer is yes and yes. There's always more that we can do in, in policy to improve pathways for investment and to provide that, that certainty. But it's also the case that government needs to be a little bit careful about going too far in you know, mandating particular parts. So I think the role of government is to 
provide clear ambitions and the right sort of incentive and regulatory structures to create the guardrails to get us there, then I think it's for business and industry to, to innovate and, um, and move in that direction. So, for example, the new federal government has passed a Climate Change Act. It was one of their first things that they've done this year. And we now have legislated emission reduction targets, 43% by 2030. And it's entirely likely that those targets will increase. My expectation would be that at the next election, the intent, the intention is to go to 50% as a legislated target. And it's possible because the federal government is expecting 82% renewable energy in Australia by 2030. So that's 82% renewable energy in this country in 85 months. The Australian Renewable Energy Agency, ARENA, which takes public taxpayer money and invests to support the growth of new industries, has done that, for instance, with solar, solar PV. And over the last 10 years, we've seen the cost of solar PV as a result of that public investment decreased by 90%. Now, ARENA's targets now are 30, 30, 30. So they want 30% efficiency in solar panels. It's currently at 22%. They want a watt of 30 cents, whereas it's currently $1.20. And they want to do that by 2030. So setting those sort of targets and ambitions, investing uh, to support the research, development and innovation that will allow us to get there, really provides clear pathways for business to invest and to move forward. Thank you. So it sounds like a really important day. Um, and just to summarise some of the key takeaways that I've learnt from you, we've really moved past that innovation curve. It is now time for capital to be investing. Uh, we're into those secondary issues, perhaps, of governance and regular issues, although, of course, course, a lot of innovative technology still awaits investment. Perhaps also great to hear about the influence of the Australian Pavilion, stemming from the great science that we have been doing, but also a growing policy focus and, as you say, more stability being given by government recently. I sort of take heart in that that legislative change has been significant, but certainly hear you that it won't be carried wholly by government. They are making the path clearer, but it's certainly up to business and industry to invest and also show leadership here as well. You've been listening to Katrina King, General Manager of Capital Solutions at QIC, have been joined by Dr. Sebastian Thomas, our Head of Climate and Environmental. Just going to ask one final question. Sebastian, we look forward to talking to you tomorrow, but firstly, I can't let you leave without sharing your fun fact from Sharm el-Sheikh for the day. Sure. Sometimes some of the facts are conveyed in really fun ways, although they might have somber messages. At the side of the, the Pakistan pavilion, for instance, is other words, happens in Pakistan, does not stay in Pakistan. And that is interesting to me because at the moment or in the last weeks, two thirds of Pakistan have been under floodwater and I'm seeing images of, of home and what's happening in Australia at the moment and the extraordinary uh, wild weather and, and flooding that's going on. So I think, you know, in many respects, it's, it's very present for all of us around the world. So things thank can you. be conveyed in fun yeah, ways. A, a big call to arms, yeah. very much a big call to arms. But thank you. you. Okay. Sharm el-Sheikh is an interesting place. It's, it's a resort city in the desert. And so you have the extraordinary uh, blue waters of, of the Red Sea and these stunning sandstone uh, mountains and, and landscapes with virtually nothing 
green growing in them at all. Um, but then there are these wonderful places like Soho Square, where there's a dancing fountain and all of this, this wonderful streaming water, bright fluorescent lights, and people gather just to dance to the, the most wonderful sort of Arabic um, music all through the night. And, and there's a lot of positive energy and joy. Thank you. Makes such a difference to hear from people on the ground. So really appreciate your time in updating us all on such a timely basis and really looking forward to hearing what you have to learn tomorrow on Society Day. No problem. Thanks for chatting, Katrina. Always good to talk.